This 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 Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. I'm Matt Burford, and it is my pleasure to bring uh, Dr. Trimper Longman the third on. He is Professor Emeritus and Distinguished Scholar at Westmont College. Now, listen, um, I was talking to him earlier before we came on the podcast. I, there are so many folks that I, I use as resources for when I go and teach and preach and all those things. But I, I noticed last week when I did a, a, a podcast with Dr. Keener, that I had a lot of his resources that were weighing down my bookshelf. And I had no clue that Dr. Trimper was also weighing down my bookshelf. So I had to actually tell my wife that these are the two people that I'm doing podcasts with. within a week are the reason why I had to put Molly screws in my wall. So uh, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Longman, and uh, allowing us to pick your brain for a few minutes. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks so much. Well, first of all, let me... Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me a little bit about uh, where you're at. Uh, tell me a little bit about where your interests lie. Yeah. So um, so I, I just retired from the Robert Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara after teaching there for 19 years. And before that, teaching 18 years at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And uh, I retired. Uh, a little early, probably as baby boomers go in the, in my field, uh, so we could move closer to our children and grandchildren, all of whom are on the East Coast. And I knew that um, I had plenty of writing to do and plenty of offers to keep teaching various places, even though I love Westmont College. It's a wonderful Christian liberal arts college for anyone who's interested in, in uh, looking for that as an option for their kids. But now I'm here and I'm, I'm writing away uh, just at this book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, Pressing Questions About Evolution, uh, Sexuality, History, and um, Violence, published by Baker. And I'm just finishing uh, two books, How to Read Daniel in a series that I've done, and a book on the Bible and public policy uh, for Erdman's which uh, will cover further controversial issues like immigration and abortion and same-sex marriage. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, I think people wonder what I'm doing in my retirement. <laughs> but uh, it's, 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 those are the types of things I've been doing. Well, a, a scholar's mind is never turned off, and you probably <laughs> will be curious until the end. Uh, let me, so I started reading a book not too long ago called The Lost World of the Flood. In fact, it was introduced to me through the Bible Project uh, that I watched a video, a uh, podcast. Actually, I listened to a podcast that they put on, and they mentioned hmm. this great book uh, called The Lost hmm. World of the Flood by Trimper Longman and John Walton. So, you know, I, I, I uh, bought it, started reading it, and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, 
this is exactly the, the kind of thing that I need to chew on and think about. Here in the Bible Belt in Alabama, of course, people think that we're religious. And, you know, I heard somebody say today, even the lost people have a church membership in Alabama, right? And so <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, yeah. we, we consider ourselves people of the book, you know, quote unquote book. Um, but it's important, at least it is for me to acknowledge that even even if we consider ourselves important people of the book, reading the book or the Bible is in how to read it hermeneutically or you know, how to read it correctly uh, is important. And in, we come into all kinds of problems and, and interesting issues, even within churches, of how do we deal with this text from our modern viewpoint? And this is what this lost world of the flood and some other books you've written try to tackle, correct? That's exactly right, uh, Matt. Uh, for that project, I teamed up with uh, my good friend, John Walton, and both of us feel that it's absolutely essential when we dig deep in Scripture to remember <clears throat> that uh, while the Bible was written for us, it is the Word of God, it is canon, wasn't written to us originally, that it's written in ancient Hebrew, and, it, you know, using literary forms that were familiar to that people. And, um, and so to really dig deep, you have to recover that lost world that at least lost temporarily to us. We just need to make good effort to recover it. And I think when we do, um, it keeps us from, from, um, uh, reading it too much from a modern perspective and therefore uh, having wrong ideas about what it's trying to communicate to us. So, so basically, so I'm at a point now in the book and it's dealing with the flood narrative, this lost world of the flood. And, and you talk about, you talk about hyperbole, you talk about how the, the certain way that they, in their cultural river, uh, which is this culmination of of the world that they live in in the ancient world that they wrote differently, and in fact they they wrote to do something else in terms of history than we than we think of history. Is that a correct assessment? I I think that's right. It's not completely different, uh, and um and and of course I I think Genesis one to eleven has some special characteristics because it's dealing with the ancient ancient past and these foundational accounts that sort of define for us from the start who god is who we are and so many other things and uh i think the best way to describe what we have in genesis 1 to 11 is on the one hand to affirm yes it is talking about things that actually happened uh, in space and time. It's not myth. It's not poetry. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's not interested in giving us kind of a straightforward account of an event, uh, but rather is using figurative language in order to tell us about real events, in order to make really important theolo uh, theological points or express important theological ideas. And so John and I actually wrote it because we had been going around lecturing on the issue of creation, where we had been talking in those terms about 
you know, the issue of creation over against modern science. And we would almost inevitably be asked, well, what do you think about the flood? So we decided to put our heads together and to uh, really put some intentional thought into the the question of the flood. Yeah, see, I think it's fascinating because um, we do, we actually do this, we do something similar. Whenever, whenever we have a, a horrible event, Think, I'm thinking Katrina, even though that was a while. Yeah. Even though that was a while back, I remember thinking when I would read a text, when I would read Drudge Report and go to a link and talk about Katrina. Inevitably, the ha- the the how is there. You know, I can recreate the event to some degree from the reporter's angle, but it's always going to turn to the why, right? Like people, yeah. people, yeah. people are created to see there has to be another reason behind this event. The ancients were doing something similar, but it's almost like they put the why before the how. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And uh, and I do think that happens. And I do think that we should acknowledge that in the case of the flood story, that there is the use of intentional hyperbole that would have been uh, recognized by the original readers. And in the book, I point out that it's not unusual to use hyperbole at certain points in telling about the past, like in Joshua 1 through 12, which you could tell is hyperbolic because you can immediately compare it. Uh, well, because Joshua 1 through 12 puts such an emphasis on Joshua's victories that you don't realize that really he only took about 50% of the land, but you recognize that immediately after you start reading Joshua 13 to 24 and, and Judges 1. So, um, so again, I think uh, it's important to, uh, to read carefully and also to understand that the use of hyperbole doesn't undermine the truthfulness of Scripture, even the inerrancy of Scripture, because the Bible is true in everything that it affirms. And, and uh, you know, I went back and took a look at the Chicago statement on inerrancy as I was working through this project and looking at it again and uh, that important discussion. And I think very helpful discussion of inerrancy points out that the use of hyperbole doesn't undermine uh, the truthfulness of scripture. And I think that's what makes people a little bit nervous. Right. And so, um, so, so again, you know, we need to judge the inerrancy of scripture, not by our own standards or impose our criteria on it, but to define it by, you know, the standards by which it was written and according to the intentions it was trying to communicate. So I remember Lewis always saying that the Bible is like an adult book. So you have to be, a, you have to be serious about it, right? I mean, it's not. Yeah. So, so as Christians, we should be the ones that take it the most seriously. I had a person one time tell me, well, you're not taking the Bible literally. And I says, well, I'm, I'm taking it seriously. <laughs> so yeah. so there, yeah. there are points where I do take it literally and there are points yeah. that I don't. And, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, my friend, I, I, my friend John Walton keeps correcting me, too, by saying, you know, when we interpret the Bible this way, we are actually taking it literally because we're interpreting oh, true, true. figurative language. That's right. I still, I still think that we, most of us use literal in, in that sense of, uh, that you're communicating, but, but on the other hand, I'm 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 not willing to give up the idea that. Well, I guess the point that I want to defend is 
I'm interpreting the text according to the intention of the author who's trying to communicate a message to me. So, but we do this, so not to scare anybody, especially those that listen to this podcast in my state, uh, what, 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 what we're trying to say is, you know, we're both, you know, we're, we're both very serious Christians and we both take this, the text seriously, but you have, to, when we learn about the text, we learn about the text by drawing from the academic world. And we also learn about the text in community, right? I mean, oh, yeah. together yeah. and, and, and it has, there's layers of meaning within the text that take a long time to think about. Yet the gospel, just taking the gospel itself is, we, we always say, at least down here, I've always heard, well, the gospel is simple to the point where it could change any man at any time or any woman. Yeah. Any and, and I acknowledge that, but I also acknowledge that just like my marriage with my wife, uh, that's going, will be 19 years this year for anniversary. It, as I learn, I learn depths of her as I live with her. Mm. And, mm. and I don't see how that's, any different than the text, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's right. I, and I've been married 45 years and I, and I will tell you, it'll continue to grow after, after four decades, your relationship with your wife. So, but, uh, so, but I think, you know, Oh, if I could just yeah. say that, um, you know, theologians talk about the perspicuity of scripture, which simply means the clarity of scripture. And that's an important thing to defend when it comes to the essential message of salvation, mm. which if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's how they define it. They say not all the things are like clear in themselves in scripture, but those matters pertaining to salvation are taught in so many ways that, um, that, um, that it's clear. If interpreted according to ordinary means, which reminds us that actually for most people to interpret the Bible, it has to be translated from the Hebrew and Greek, which involves a whole bunch of interpretive decisions, I say, as someone who is a senior translator for the New Living Translation, mm-hmm. we spent 10 years, you know, providing a, a translation of the of the scriptures. And that's true, of course, for the ESV, for the NIV and all the other translations as well. But the message is clear, even if perhaps the way we translate exactly Genesis 1, 1 and 2 may be a matter of debate, you know? <laughs> Man, we, we, I, there's so much we could touch on. I, this is really a podcast, a tease for people to say what, and then go read your book and go buy your book. But I will, tr- I want to transition real quickly though, because, um, so you've done a lot of work on wisdom literature. I used a lot of your stuff in researching the the practicum that I did with my doctorate ministry, and then also the the, the written dissertation like thing that I had to do. Uh, define wisdom for me. Uh, what if you, somebody had to say what is wisdom? What is wisdom to you? Yeah, um, and uh, if I could plug another one of my books that came out a couple of years ago, "Fear of the Lord is Wisdom." Uh, in there, I I describe wisdom on three levels. There's the practical level, which is what a lot of people think about, a skill of living, which is very similar to emotional intelligence. But then there's the also the ethical component of wisdom. To be a wise person is to be a righteous person and to have character. And, um, and then, but there's a fundamental theological dimension, too, that's communicated by the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and also described in the early chapters of Proverbs as entering into a relationship with woman wisdom. 
So sorry, it's not a very concise definition. <laughs> well, the minute, but, well, that's what I always say. The minute you, wisdom is not doesn't it always kind of pushes against being concise. <laughs> like yeah, real, that's right. Real that's binary right. stuff. It, it's doing something different. The reason I ask that because with this work with the lost world of the flood, in the work of translating, in the work of trying to figure out what that inspired theological meaning and layer is of our text. Is there such thing as a wisdom type hermeneutic? I mean, what is what role is wisdom playing mm. in def, in trying to figure out what is being meant in scripture? Yeah, well, I, I think especially when we realize that interpretation or hermeneutics involves more than just understanding what it meant back then, but taking what it meant back then and communicating it to today and obeying it today, um, there's definitely a um, wisdom element to it, which involves just not um, knowing the text, but also knowing the situation and knowing people and knowing yourself as you um, study scripture. So um, so I think that's another important dimension of wisdom, which is uh, it's not enough just to know the text. It, you have to, you know, know how to apply it in a way that will, you know, transform people and yourself mm. today. Yeah, that's, yeah, man, that's good. Maybe maybe you can write a book called Wisdom Hermeneutics, and then I can sell that. Or so. <laughs> you, you could write it, and I could endorse it. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, I hope it's not the last time. And in fact, uh, for those who are listening, uh, maybe uh, prayerfully we can think about having you you down and, and and blessing us with your your presence in Birmingham, and and maybe we can you know over over lunch or supper talk about some of these things a little bit more but is there a, a specific website that you have uh that people could go to uh you know i i don't i should do that but uh but uh if people are interested in my books they could check it out on amazon.com of course sure well, well maybe we'll fix it maybe we'll have a a, a dr uh, longman section of tactical faith and then we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just send people to it. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for your work. Thank you for the, all that you have done. And it is, it's, I hope it's encouraging to you that your work is living on. It's affecting, it has affected me deeply. It's affected others. And uh, we, we hope for the best for you and your family. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs>